Today we'll be continuing in the book of Acts. We'll be in Acts chapter 5. We're going to begin in verse 17. Last week we, we, we started and uh, finished the first part of Acts, Acts, of Acts chapter 5, excuse me, Acts chapter 5, 1 through 16. Kind of a different story as we saw the power of the early church in a different way. We're going to bounce and kind of switch subjects here and come back to, uh, to, some, to the beginnings of persecution of the church here in Acts chapter 5. So we're going to jump in. In verse 17, you can go through 20 to begin with, it says this, And the high priest and all his associates, who were members of the party of the Sadducees, were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and put them in the public jail. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. Go stand in the temple courts, he said, until all the people, excuse me, yes, until all the people all about this new life. We're having some some jealousy problems amongst the, the leaders, uh, the Sadducees, who are the leaders kind of of the temple during Jesus' time, and they're getting a bit, a bit jealous of all that the apostles are doing. We left the story last week with the apostles healing all kinds of people. If you remember, crowds were gathering to be healed by the, the apostles. Some were even trying to just put sick people into Peter's shadow in order for him to be healed. And what we have going on here is a little jealousy of the crowds that are being gathered for this, this new movement that's going on and so what they're trying to do is to try to suppress the movement and they think by doing that by persecuting the church that that will be accomplished Uh, the problem as all of us know is it doesn't work all that well for them but they're going to try nonetheless so the high priest and all the sadducees all the people that are that are the power brokers of the jewish temple and the jewish faith are now going after the first christians so they arrest the apostles and put them in public jail. The jail is there to, to await a trial, and then you'll find out what your punishment is from there. The problem is, during the night, an angel of the Lord comes and opens the jail and lets them out. Not so helpful when God's working against you. Things aren't probably going to go your way. It's just FYI, right? Um, if, you're, if, you are, if you are operating counter to the will of God, uh, things probably aren't going to go smoothly for you. And so they try to do their best to shut these guys up. That's the goal, Right? is to quiet them down. They need to quit talking about this Jesus, quit talking about how the people who are getting jealous or some of the people who helped crucify him lead to his death. And so they go, and what does the angel tell the apostles? It's going to sound very similar to what Jesus told the apostles before his ascension to heaven in Matthew 28. The first word in verse 20 is, is go. Go. The last thing Jesus tells his apostles before he goes to heaven for his sins is in Matthew 28 is what? Go. Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And when you do that, it says, I'll be with you always to the very end of the age. And he is proving that right now, is he not? Because the apostles have gone, they've went, they're going to the temple, they're proclaiming the name of Jesus everywhere they go. They're being persecuted for it, but is God leaving them out there to dry? Is God leaving them out there hanging? No. God's with them the entire time. And this, this story is one of the proofs of that. We see the apostles thrown in jail, and who comes to the rescue? God does, right? God comes to the rescue. He sends an angel to open the doors of the jail and brings them out and then tells them, hey, this doesn't change anything. The mission's still the same. The purpose is still the same. I need you to go. What's he say? Go. Stand in the temple courts until all the people all about this new life. 
says, don't stop. Keep doing what you're doing. Don't let this negative experience, don't let this bad experience affect all that you're, you've been charged to do because the, 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 the challenge is still the same and that challenge is to go. And notice how the angel describes what it means to be a Christian. The last two words in verse 20 are pretty telling, aren't they? Go stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell all the people all about this new life. That's what being a Christian is. It's a new life. It's a life that's going to be lived differently than, than the way you lived your life before you came to know this Jesus. And it has to be. It has to be different. It can't be the same. That's not what God's called us to do. Now, the great thing about this is God is working on our behalf, right? God is the one who changes hearts. God is the one who transforms. We just do our part. We're just faithful to that. We put God in us, and God will do the work. But this is a different kind of life. It's a new one. When you come to know this Jesus, the reset button has been hit. And it's starting over anew all over again. It's a beautiful a beautiful life that we live. A life partner with God will always be worth living in the end. The story continues, and look what happens in verse 21 through 24. At daybreak, they entered the temple courts, as they had been told, and began to teach the people. What are the apostles doing? They're just being faithful, right? The angel of the Lord leads them out. The reason that they're in jail is because they've been out in the temple courts proclaiming about this Jesus. They are arrested to shut him up. The angel lets him out and says, go, don't stop, keep doing it. And what happens in verse 21? At daybreak, as soon as they can, they are back at the temple courts teaching the people all over again. They are not being hindered by the persecution that they are facing. Matter of fact, it's just spurring them on even more. What we see in verse 21 is a group of people who are faithful to the mission of God. And nothing is going to stop them from doing that. The question we have to ask ourselves is why? Why are they so faithful? Remember, these are the same people that we we began the book of Acts. I told you, these same people, almost all of them, are going to be killed for this Jesus. Their life's going to be cut short because of their faith in Jesus. We have to ask the question, when you see something powerful like this, and the book of Acts is only going to get more powerful, we have to ask the question, why? Why are they doing this? It's because they believe wholeheartedly in the resurrection. They believe it because they saw it. They were there. They know the power and the might that our God has. Now, if you've ever seen, if you heard Chuck Colson, Chuck Colson had worked for the White House. He was involved in the Watergate scandal. He went to prison for many years and began a prison ministry after that. There's a great quote. I don't have it for you. There's a great quote from Chuck Colson talking about these apostles. He says, you know, Chuck had, had been in, in the most influential office in the most powerful nation of the world, right? He'd worked for President Nixon. When Watergate happened, he said it took just about three or four days before everyone started turning on everybody else, right? Everybody, oh no, here we go, we're all in trouble. And what happens? If none of them can keep a secret, they all start squawking instantly. He said the reason he believes in the resurrection is because he went through Watergate. Because what he saw there was these 12 powerful, these, all these powerful men this powerful office who couldn't keep a secret. And once it all hit the fan, they were like, done. What do you need to know? I don't want to be in trouble. Here you go. It says, and I read the story of, of the New Testament, and what do I see from these apostles? When it gets tough, when it gets hard, what happens? They, they're there. They don't give up. 
The only reason that can happen is because they believe with every ounce of their being that Jesus is who he says he is. That he is alive even to today. The reason that they're willing to die for this is because they believe it with every fiber of their being. We have no greater witnesses to the resurrection than the people like this who even though they're facing persecution, even though they're being threatened, and later on, in just a few chapters, one of them is going to be killed, even into death, they remain faithful. Which tells us that what they believe happened. That what they saw was real. Because if it wasn't, if this is all a hoax, when this happens, what do they do? They cut and run. Right? They're gone. They're like, hey, never mind, this is getting real. Uh, I'm gone. I'm out of here. The only reason that they stay is because they know it's true. They know it's true because they were there. So they begin to teach. They're not being hindered. They're not being stopped. And look what happens in the second half of verse 21. When the high priest and his associates arrived, they called together the Sanhedrin, the full assembly of the elders of Israel, and sent to the jail for the apostles. Remember, they think they're in jail still. But on arrival at the jail, the officers did not find them there. So they went back and reported. That's a fun feeling, right? Being a jailer. Uh, something happened. It's empty. Not so good. Probably not getting raised, right? <clears throat> That's what they reported in verse 23. We found the jail securely locked with the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. Hearing this report, the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests were at a loss, wondering what this might lead to. Like the guys are there still, the doors are still locked, but nobody's inside. Thinking to yourself, okay, well, what? Something happened. Either someone let them out or something beyond our understanding happened. Of course, we know the story already, right? We already know what happened. The angel let them out. But you can imagine what's going through their mind. As these people, remember the ones they've in prison, have been healing people, have been speaking in Jesus' name, have been doing all kinds of miraculous things. If you're their opposition, if you're the person who's trying to shut them up, this isn't so good, is it? Because now they're escaping from prison cells. A place that they should not be escaping from. And look what happens in verse 24. You, you can almost hear the nervousness in verse 24. On hearing this report, the captain, the temple guard, and the chief priests were at a loss. Wondering what this might lead to. What are they thinking to themselves? Oh, no. This is not getting better. This is getting worse. We're trying to quiet this. We're trying to squash this while it's small and take care of it, and it's not working. As a matter of fact, it's, it's backfiring. It's getting bigger. Because now what they do, they just set the, the apostles up for another miracle, did they not? By putting them in jail. God shows up and frees them. They go, oh, now we're helping them. Right now we're, we're making their reputation grow. This is essentially what's happening. Don't worry, the story gets better. And someone came and said, look, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple courts teaching the people. At that, the captain went with his officers and brought the apostles. They did not use force because they feared that the people would stone them. Someone comes, hey guys, the guys you're looking for, they're out there talking. Right? They haven't ran, they didn't flee. They're back out doing what you told them not to do. They're in the temple courts talking about this Jesus. And so the temple guard goes, well, I guess we can go 
go grab, we know where they are at least now. We've found them. We've located them. So they go and they bring the apostles to the Sanhedrin as the goal. But notice how they do it. Verse 26 tells us that they don't use force. Not because they didn't want to. They probably would have liked to club them over the head at this point, right? Make them be quiet. They don't use force because they feared that the people would stone them. They're afraid of public perception. They're worried that all of what the apostles have been doing, all the positive things that have been happening because of them, are now going to lead the people to, to sway. And if they go out there and they arrest them and they cause a riot could start. That's what they're concerned about. These are the people, remember, who are supposed to have the influence over the nation of Israel, over the Jewish people. They're supposed to be their guiding light when it comes to everything that happens at the temple. What we have here is the apostles have, have taken their place. And now they're, they're scared. It's, power is a, is, a, is a weird thing. Far too often, people aren't all that great at handling it. And I think that's what we're seeing here from these, the members of the Sanhedrin. The problem with power is when people have it, they tend to want to keep it. And they, they, they guard it. But if you notice how God uses power, when he gives the apostles power, it's never for the apostles themselves. Do you, do you notice that? When God gives power to people, he doesn't give it so they can hoard it and keep it and make it all their own. He gives it for people to share, to, give to, other, to, to be a blessing to other people. That's what the Sanhedrin was supposed to be this entire time. They're supposed to keep the temple in working orders to be a blessing for the people who come to the temple. But here we have a story where they're, they're, they're trying to hoard power, trying to keep it for themselves. And the apostles are giving it away freely. Because that's what God does. He gives it away. If you don't believe me, you just go read the Gospels exactly what he did in the person of Jesus. Gives power away. Look what happens as the apostles are brought in in front of them. Verse 27 and 28. The apostles were brought in and made to appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, he said. That you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Remember, when Peter spoke to them before, what did he say? Hey, you guys are the ones who killed him. I mean, it's gutsy, right? And they remembered that. They haven't forgotten it. He says, hey, we told you to be quiet, and you're not being quiet. Verse 28, we gave you strict orders not to teach in this name. Notice how they won't even say the name. Why? Because that name has power. It has great power. They're scared to even let the name of Jesus pass through their lips. He says, we told you to be quiet. We gave you strict orders to quit talking about this Jesus guy, but you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. And you're placing the blame on us. And we don't like that, right? As that's what he's saying. The problem is, the truth isn't always all that likable, is it? You ever have someone drops a little truth on you, and you think to yourself, that wasn't much fun, Right? but they're right. They're not, the apostles aren't making this story up. This is what happened. They'll say, hey, we're just, we're just proclaiming truth. 
always be very nervous of people who try to silence truth. They're, they're generally hiding something. I mean, that's just, just words to live by. People are trying to, to restrict truth and the, and the free speech, the free speaking of truth. You should get nervous. So we've had far too many people throughout human history who have done that. And it's led to millions and millions of people's deaths. When people try to take the truth and get rid of it and co-opt it and make it into something of their own. The 20th century is a great example of that, if you don't believe me. Just Google the names Stalin, Mao, Hitler, people like that who try to take truth and warp it and turn it into something different. Dangerous, dangerous people. Truth has always been vitally important to Judeo-Christian ethics, speaking the truth. And all Peter and the apostles are doing is speaking the truth. It's all they're doing. The truth should not be all that dangerous. But to the Sanhedrin, it is. This is the reply that comes from Peter and the other apostles. Peter and the other apostles replied, We must obey God rather than human beings. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging him on a cross. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Remember, this is Peter who was too cowardly to stand outside of Jesus' hearings when Jesus was being crucified. Remember that, Peter, who denied him three times and ran with his... T- Listen to him now. That's what the Holy Spirit does. Holy Spirit gives power. And look at Peter's reply. He starts out by repeating something we've already seen in the book of Acts, right? We must obey God rather than human beings. And if you think we're going to listen to you over God, you've got another thing coming. Not going to happen. And then look what he does. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging him on a cross. Remember? They just got mad because they said, hey, remember, you're putting this guy's blood on our hands. Like what? Peter goes, yep, sure are. Because it happened. Peter doesn't, I mean, he doesn't mince words. These are the same people who helped get Jesus crucified. The last time Peter was near them, he ran away as fast as he could and hid. And here he is standing toe to toe, just being a man, right? Just, hey, this is the truth. Here it comes, whether you like it or not. Remember this, this Jesus whom God raised from the dead? The guy you killed by placing him on a cross. That didn't work. Verse 31, God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior, that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. Verse 32, we are witnesses of these things. The reason that Peter and the apostles cannot be quiet, like we already talked about, is they were there. They saw it. And no one's going to tell them any different. And Peter says, but we aren't the only witnesses. The Holy Spirit was a witness as well whom God has given to those who obey him. What does Peter have that those in the Sanhedrin don't? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has filled Peter and the other apostles and has given them a courage that cannot be found in someone who just doesn't have that spirit. And so Peter's able to stand toe-to-toe with these men and tell them exactly what he thinks. 
And this is how they respond. You could probably guess how they're going to respond to that, right? When they heard this, they were furious and wanted to put them to death. It's a pattern there, isn't there? Anger is an interesting thing. It can be used for good sometimes. there's There's a healthy anger, right? We should get mad about certain things. There's certain things that should upset us. When the weak... When the fragile are taken advantage of, that should upset us. Right? We, should be, we should be upset when people are, are used and abused. That should upset us. That should lead to a holy and righteous anger. But there's times, like when our pride gets hurt, when our little feelings get stepped on, where we probably should stop and think, why are we getting angry? Because look at the anger that the Sanhedrin has. And what is it about? When they heard this, they were furious. And wanted to put them to death. If you're going to prove that you're innocent of this Jesus' blood on your hands, you probably shouldn't start killing his followers. You would think, logic might say, that if you just start killing more people, it isn't going to look good for you. Anger makes you not think all that well, does it? It does very interesting things. And so they're trying to prove, hey, stop telling people that we are the one who killed Jesus. And they're going to prove that by killing the people who are telling people that they killed Jesus. Makes perfect sense, Right? No, it's, 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 it's insane. It's literal insanity. If you get your feelings hurt and your first thought is, let's start killing people, it's a you problem, right? It's you. You're the problem. Quit blaming everybody else. They heard this. Their feelings got hurt because Peter's speaking the truth and they think to themselves, let's just start killing these guys. That'll shut them up. But look what happens in verse 34. Something very unexpected in the story. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, who was honored by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered that the men be put outside for a little while. Then he addressed the Sanhedrin, men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do to these men. Some time ago, Thaddeus appeared, claiming to be somebody, and about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed, all his followers were dispersed, and it all came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census and led a band of people in revolt. He too was killed and all his followers were scattered. Therefore, in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. There are some people who have what we would refer to as wisdom. And Gamaliel is one of those people. Just when you take an entire group and you label them and think this whole group is bad, one of them has to do something good, don't they? See, it's pretty easy to beat on the Pharisees throughout the, right, throughout the New Testament. It's pretty easy to beat on the Sadducees. We even created a little kid song, right? I don't want to be sad, you see. I don't want to be fair. You, see, you remember seeing that in Sunday school? Just when you think you can take a group of people and you can, all, you can lump them all together and say, look, they're all bad. One of them refuses to fit the mold. That's why it's so important for us to take every individual as an individual. Because that's how God takes us, isn't it? It doesn't count the sins of our parents or grandparents against us. We get a a clean slate. We just start over. We're going to make our own future. If you look throughout history of movements that were terrible, they tended to take a whole group of people and just lump them together as one people. Those people are all bad based on whatever, the color of their skin, where they're from, how much money they make, whatever it is. And this whole group is bad. 
do something about them. The problem with that is we're not, we don't think as groups. God created us each individually. We have the ability to think and reason and act all by ourselves. God has given us the free will to make our choices by ourselves. You and I are lucky enough to be born in a country or live in a country where we can, we can make those decisions ourselves. You can be whoever you choose to be. It's your choice. Not everybody through history has had that ability. You do. And just when we were about to throw all the Sanhedrins, throw the baby with the, out with the bathwater, right? A Pharisee named Gamaliel steps up and says, hey, hang on a second, guys. Let's all just calm down. Let's think this through. And what does he say? He says, guys, if this is, this is from human origin, this is just another person. He uses two examples. Judas, who was practiced probably about 6 AD, just a little bit after the birth of Jesus during the, the census, tried to lead a revolt against Rome. Thaddeus is a little, we're not quite sure. Josephus lists him later. We're not sure when he was in history. He lists two examples of people who tried to lead movements, said they were movements of God, and those movements failed. They're gone. They dispersed. What does Gamaliel say? Hey, guys, calm down. If these guys are just doing their own thing for their own personal gain, if this isn't something that's from God, it will fail. But what's he say in verse 39? But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourself fighting against God. Take a deep breath and let's slow down. Now this Gamaliel is quite the person. He's known in the Mishnah, the Jewish text. He is one of the first people to to take the name R-A-B-B-A-N, Rabban, instead of just Rabbi, which means our master, our great one. He was renowned in the first century for his teaching. He's mentioned here and in Acts chapter 22-3 where we learn that Saul, who you know as Paul, set at his feet to learn. He discipled the Apostle Paul. He was the man who taught the Apostle Paul all that he knows. And if you know anything about the Apostle Paul, he's a little bright. Like, real bright. We also know from Jewish history that he was believed to be of the school of Hillel, which was a more compassionate side of the Pharisees. He also... His, grand, his son, excuse me, Simeon ben Gamaliel, was among some of the highest elites a generation later, and then his grandson carried on that same tradition. Come from great lineage of great teaching. And here, in this moment, he becomes a great advocate for you and me. Listen, think, listen to his speech again. He says, guys, these people have come and gone. I don't know, why are you getting all excited about what are you getting so fired up over? If they're, from, if they're just doing it themselves because they just want attention, whatever it is, it's going to be done. But if it's from God, you're not going to be able to fight it. And what do you know? Here you are today, almost 2,000 years later. What's that tell you about the movement? It's unstoppable. Why? Because it's true. Many men and women much smarter than I have come to the same conclusion that there is just one way and it's through this Jesus. 
Gamaliel said, if it's, from, if it's not from God, guys, it's going nowhere. And here we are today. Went somewhere, didn't it? And look what his words, look what his words do to this crowd. Remember, this crowd, and just, just like a few minutes ago, was trying to kill these apostles. We're done with them. Let's put them to death. I'm tired of listening to them. And look what happens in verse 40, 41 and 42. His speech persuaded them. They called the apostles in and had them flogged. And they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. One man stands up who has the respect and has the wisdom and knowledge and says, guys, enough. This has gone too far. Stop. And the entire Sanhedrin is swayed by one man's words. Man, how important is one person who's willing to speak up on behalf of somebody else? Because Gamaliel could have said, this is not my fight, this is not my problem, I'm going to sit back here and just do my crossword puzzle and just go on with life, right? Could have said nothing and done nothing. He stands up and says, guys, this this is crazy. Stop. Stop. Bring the emotion down. Let's think this through. And his words have such an impact that a group who's trying to kill the apostles says, okay, let's let them go. That's quite a change, is it not? From let's kill them to, yeah, you can go free. I mean, that's about as big of a pendulum swing as you can get. From like, let's, let's put them to death to, oh, yeah, okay, you're all right, I guess. Because one man had the courage to say, guys, stop. When you think your voice doesn't matter, Remember that you have a Holy Spirit that lives inside you that has great power that comes with that Holy Spirit that your voice can matter when you speak up on behalf of those who are hurting and the oppressed and those who are, who are facing actual and real injustice. One voice matters. We've seen it throughout history, have we not? Think about the people of Calcutta who had a one voice, a little, little teeny voice. She wasn't very tall. Her name was Mother Teresa. She saw people hurting and suffering. And so what did she do? She dedicated her life to people who were hurting and suffering. And she didn't stand but this tall, but had great power. Why? The Holy Spirit that's in you was in her. Never making it about herself. Never writing a book. Didn't even want her journals published till after her death because it wasn't about her, right? And what did she do? And she changes these people's world. We can keep going. One person who stands up and says, enough's enough. Something has to change. And the world changes. Gamaliel is one of those people who stands up. Doesn't have to, but he does. And helps change the world because you and I are here today. The speech persuades them. They call the apostles in. They beat them. Flogging, of course, is 39 lashes of a a rod, a piece of leather or something. It doesn't feel great on your back and the back of your thighs, right? It's not a fun experience. They order them, after they beat them, to to stop speaking in the name of Jesus because that's worked so far, right? And look what happens in verse 41. You want to see the difference between the church... 2,000 years ago in the church today, verse 41 is a pretty good synopsis. The apostles left the Sanhedrin after being beaten, rejoicing because they had been counted worthy 
of suffering disgrace for the name. I would love to tell you that I, that I have lived out verse 41 in my life. That would be a lie. The apostles are beaten. And what do they do? If you and I got beaten today, we'd go home in such a pouty little mood. We, 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 we'd be unconsolable for a week, right? We'd be writing letters to the editor. We'd be taking Facebook videos of how, look how unjust this was. How could this possibly happen? They hurt me, my feelings. And look at the... Look at my back. It's, there's owies all over it. I need all these. Bring band-aids, right? We'd be, we would, would we not? Let's be honest. The apostles are beaten. Like beaten. Like beaten bloody. And they left the Sanhedrin, not with their heads down and pouting, and like, how could this happen to us? They left the Sanhedrin rejoicing. Because they had been counted worthy of suffering for the name of Jesus. Because they thought they were worthy enough to suffer. And you and I do everything possible to avoid suffering at all costs, do we not? And they thought, look, we're worthy. God's counted us good enough to suffer like the sun. They're rejoicing in their suffering. Imagine beating someone like that and watching them leave singing a tune, right? Whistling and just going on their merry way. You're thinking, what is wrong with those people? How do you stop someone like that? The answer is you can't. Because killing them didn't work. They get there eventually. It didn't work. It didn't stop it. When you can, can suffer and go, okay, what's next? There's, there's no stopping you. Because suffering is really the thing that quiets us down, that gets us back in line. And these first Christians, they suffer and they go, yeah, I'd love a little more of that actually. Could you keep doing that? People are thinking, um, what? These people are crazy. What did they see Jesus do? Remember, these are witnesses to death, burial, resurrection. They were there. What do they see Jesus do? They see Jesus suffer on our behalf. Completely innocent. And yet, get the, the punishment that you and I deserved. So they think to themselves, man, when I suffer, I get to be a little bit like, like Jesus. And what did Peter tell us about this Jesus? He is prince and what? Savior. They think themselves worthy of suffering for this Jesus. And look what happens. Remember they told them, they beat him and say, quit talking about Jesus. So they beat him, they leave in verse 42. They're good listeners, they're like my kids, right? Verse 42, day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. Thick scold bunch, aren't they? They don't listen well. They literally beat him and said, okay, quit talking about Jesus. And the next verse says, day after day, by the way, they never stopped talking, teaching, proclaiming the good news that Jesus is who he says he is, that he is the Messiah. You can't stop that. And they couldn't. Because they beat them and said, stop it. And they went, eh, that wasn't so bad. 
let's talk even more. How do you quiet that group down? You can't. It can't be done. And because of that, you and I are here today because they were unstoppable. Because they were willing to suffer greatly and mightily so that you and I could be here today. If they stopped, if they stopped proclaiming the name of this Jesus, stopped giving us the good news that your sins have been forgiven, you and I are hopeless and lost for forever. The reason they can't be quieted, the reason they won't stop is because this life is not the end. And they knew it. They knew it. And so their thought was, you can do whatever you want to me here and now, but I have a day coming where I'll walk in a place where the streets are paved with gold. Because gold is, is pretty ho-hum in the place we're headed, isn't it? We'll go to a place where John tells us that there's no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. A place where God will wipe every tear from our eyes where we'll see Him face to face. The reason that these apostles can't be stopped is taking their life isn't all that big of a deal because it just ushers them sooner into the life that's to come. The reason that they are not quiet and they can't be stopped is because if you take death off the table, what else do you have to lose? Peter said, we have to listen to to God, not to people. Because God makes that decision, doesn't He? Not people. The reason that they never stopped proclaiming the good news is because they weren't afraid of what was to come. They looked forward to it. It's like you and me. I know it hurts. I know it hurts bad when we lose someone we love. I know. It hurts because it was never part of the plan. You read the book of Genesis. Death was never in there until sin entered the world. Sin brought death, the Apostle Paul tells us. I know it hurts when we lose someone we love. But did we really lose them? We might lose them for a little while. The day is coming. We'll see them again. And if that's here, what could possibly stop you? What do you have to be afraid of? The answer is nothing. Nothing. And we see men and women in the book of Acts who are fearless. They're fearless. They're fearless because death is no longer scary to them. It's like it's no longer scary to us. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the opportunity we have to read these words, to hear the story of, of these first Christians who were so brave, who had such courage that was given from you to them, to face opposition, to look at those who, who wanted to bring them harm and who, who did bring them harm, and speak truth and life into their lives and the lives of everybody around them. God, we ask that you would give us that same courage to speak truth and life to wherever we wherever we are, to whomever we're with, God, to give them your, your words, which are always and have always been good.
God, we thank you that these apostles, these first followers of yours, were willing to sacrifice everything to make sure that this message, this good news, that sins, our sins have been forgiven and that death is not the end, would spread to every part of the world. If it wasn't for their work, God, we would not be here today. And we're so grateful that they were faithful to you. Help us be faithful to you as well. That wherever we go, we proclaim the good news of an empty tomb, of a new life that's found only in you, through our actions and through our words. God, we cannot thank you enough for all that you have done for us, but we thank you especially for this Jesus, who you sent as a perfect sacrifice to take care of all of our sin once and for all. God, we are so grateful that the grave that he was placed in didn't stay his grave for very long. That three days later, he came back to life, giving us the promise of life everlasting with you, taking away all of our fear once and for all. And when we are in you, we have nothing to be afraid of. We thank you and we love you. We pray all this in the powerful and healing name of your son, Jesus, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen.